Welcome to Her Story, the history of Southeast Asia told from her perspective. We'll discover historical figures, matriarchal societies, and contemporary female icons, and maybe learn about ourselves along the way. I'm Agas Ramirez. In this episode, we'll talk about Raja Hijau's rise to power and the Malay Sultanate of Patani's nearly unbroken line of queens from 1584 to 1718. Between the 14th and 17th centuries, Southeast Asia had a great number of female rulers. They ruled over Pasai, Majapahit, Japara, and Bantan in Java, Aceh, Palembang, and Jambi in Sumatra, Sukadanar in Borneo, Kalantan in Malaya, Solor in the Lesser Sundas, Vietnam, Ternate, and of course, Patani. This long list isn't very surprising. In many pre-modern societies, the throne could be inherited by a female member of the ruling family when no immediate male heir existed. But even so, they were seen as exceptions. Succession generally relapsed to the male line after the death, abdication, or deposition of the female ruler. But there are a few instances in which a line of consecutive or near-consecutive women rulers exercised formal authority. Patani is one of the least well-known and least well-researched of these cases despite the fact that they had seven queens for most of the period between 1584 and 1718. In Patani, successive women were placed on the throne, a pattern that wasn't seen after the 17th century. This is significant because these periods of female rule coincided with cosmopolitan, trade-friendly regimes and were the most active period for these states in international commerce. Patani, now a part of Thailand, is located on the east coast of the Malay Peninsula. It's important for us to understand what Patani was like, so we begin in the 5th century AD. At this time, a number of small states had developed in southern Thailand. The most prominent of these small states to emerge in the Patani region was Lankasuka. It was first mentioned in the history of Liang dynasty in 502-556 AD. According to Wyatt, it was then an important trading port for Asian sailors. Mariners began to sail directly across the Gulf of Siam from the southernmost tip of Vietnam to the Malay Peninsula, and this often brought them to landfall in the region of Patani. The transition from Lankasuka to Patani is not clear. The Hikayat Patani, a semi-legendary set of tales that chronicle the history of the Patani kingdom, mentions Kota Malikai as Patani's predecessor. It appears that a small coastal fishing village gradually arose at the expense of Kota Malikai, which was an earlier inland kingdom. When the fishing village developed into a bustling port, the ruler of Kota Maligay then moved his kraton or palace, thus founding Patani. The date of this move is uncertain, but Wyatt believes it occurred between 1350 and 1450 AD. It was a period of expanding trade, increasing Thai interest in the peninsula, and the spread of Islam. 
Patani's role in Southeast Asian trade expanded so that by 1540, 300 independent Portuguese traders had settled there. After the 1560s, Chinese so-called pirates, probably just anti-Ming dynasty traders, made it their base due to its proximity to China. Profits were up to one-third larger because risks and expenses for shorter voyages were smaller compared to if they traded from somewhere like Banten. So Patani became the doorway to East Asia. The Dutch arrived later in 1602 and the English in 1612. But the height of Patani's prosperity begins during the reign of Raja Hijau from 1584 to 1618. The period of prosperity would last a hundred years and be an important part of the region's history forever. Raja Hijau, whose name means green, was the first in a line of four queens named after colors. But how did Raja Hijau rise to power and rule in her own right? The following account is definitely not Princess Diaries. Raja Hicha was actually the eldest daughter of Sultan Manzur Shah of the Sri Wangsa dynasty. When the Sultan passed away, there was a deadly struggle over the Patani throne. The throne passed to the Sultan's nine-year-old son, Sultan Patiksiam, with his aunt Raja Aisha acting as regent. One year later, both Sultan Patiksiam and Raja Aisha were stabbed to death by Patiksiam's half-brother Raja Bambang. Raja Bambang was in turn later killed by a court official named Seri Amrat who led a coup against him. And so, Sultan Mansur Shah's other son, the 10-year-old Bahadur Shah, became Sultan. But in 1584, after 11 years on the throne, he was also stabbed to death by his brother Raja Bhima. Raja Bhima didn't get a chance to rule. He was struck and killed with a lance during the coup. Thus, the male line of Sultan Mansur Shah was purged and Patani was left without heirs to the throne. According to the Hikayat Patani, Then the ministers and officers entered the compound and gathered in the audience hall to discuss whom they would install as Sultan Bahadur's successor. Now concerning the children of Marum Bungsu, Mansur Shah, there were no sons left. There remained only daughters. Raja Hija was then installed and she was the first to become queen here in the country of Patani. Now as for Raja Hijau, while reigning over the country, she was called Berachau, queen, as Raja Aisha had once been called. While it's likely that Patani's long period of female rule can be traced to the lack of male heirs, apparently there were no fixed rules of succession in the first place. It was just that the male line of succession was generally preferred to the female. In this respect, Patani was similar to other contemporary Malay states. The royal succession reflected the cognatic kinship of most Malays, which recognized both the male and female lines of descent, but gave precedence to the male. It is also worth noting that women had a relatively prominent position in the Patani court even before Raja Hijau's ascension to the throne. In contrast to some courts in the region, such as Kartasura, where the genealogies did not even record all of the sultan's daughters, they are all carefully accounted for in the Hikayat Patani. The murdered Raja Aisha is also key in this analysis. Her title, Perachau, is derived from the Siamese royal title Frachau. This makes her distinct from both the Arab title of Sultan and the Persian-derived title Sia, which were associated with Islam the Malay cultural sphere, and previous male rulers of the dynasty. 
The usage of Perachau by Raja Aisha and Raja Hijau also symbolized Patani's tributary status to Siam, though this is largely token in nature. It also symbolized a lack of Islam-based legitimacy to their rule. Unlike Aceh, which also institutionalized female rule in the 17th century, the impact of Islam had never been very strong in Patani. Neither the male nor the female rulers of the dynasty seem to have derived their legitimacy from religion. And in fact, Patani's rulers didn't seem to be interested in promoting Islamic culture or implementing Sharia law. Idol worship continued parallel with Islamic worship during this period. There are no indications of any significant Islamic opposition against female rule. It is theorized that the relatively weak position of world religions, namely Islam, Theravada Buddhism, and Christianity, facilitated the institutionalization of female rule in Patani. A quick break for a word from our sponsors. We at Synchronicity Events PH know how much each event means to our clients. Whether you're turning 18 or 60, or planning on walking down the aisle, We'll help you make everything flow smoothly so you can be worry-free on your special day. Drop us a line on Facebook at SyncEventsPH. That's S-Y-N-C EventsPH. Shortly after she ascended to the throne, Raja Hijau faced a coup attempt by her Prime Minister, Bendahara Kayukalat. He assembled an army of 5,000 men and marched on the capital. When her aides informed her about the advancing rebels, she is said to have smiled and not said a word. The queen was deserted by all her ministers and officers, leaving her alone to face the insurgents outside the palace. According to the Hikayat Patani, the queen immediately put on a green jacket and a flower wreath scarf of a yellowish color embroidered with gold. When the prime minister arrived in front of the staircase, the queen took the scarf from her person and threw it to the prime minister, who immediately caught it and wound it around his head. After the prime minister had put on his turban, he drew his kris from his side and laid it on the ground. Then he knelt on the ground, paying homage to the queen three times in succession. Then, after the prime minister had risen from his obeisance, he bowed respectfully again and spoke. Hail, madam, may your majesty's might and prosperity ever increase on this most noble royal throne. Then the prime minister bowed again and returned to Taki, where he halted. By all accounts, Raja Hija was calm, fearless, and dignified. Her behavior reflected the ideal qualities generally expected of kings in traditional societies, regardless of cultural context. We call this Chakravartin a universal ruler who is ethical and benevolent. Her handling of the rebellion served to establish her as a charismatic queen, possessing all the personal qualities associated with power. She wasn't just queen. She was also one of the major traders and financiers of the city. According to Reed, her Malay monarchy absorbed a diversity of foreign traders into a polyglot elite united by the royal person, a Malay lingua franca, and a pattern of rules and sacred regalia passed down from courts like Malacca and Pasai. Her reign was also a period of high cultural achievement. 
Patani was a leading center for music, dance, drama, and handicraft production, including metalworking, weaving, and wood carving. Many European visitors wrote about Raja Hijau. A Dutch ship's doctor named Roloff Roloffs, who took part in a procession in Patani in 1602, wrote that the queen was greeted by around 4,000 men-in-arms and 156 big elephants. Her palace, according to a report by the Dutch Admiral Jacob van Neck, was decorated with golden panels. Peter Flores, an Englishman, reported that when the queen went hunting, she was accompanied by a great train of over 600 boats. Raja Hija was also a hands-on political leader. The Hikayat Patani recounts how she, after deliberations with her ministers and officials, decided that an important channel was to be built in order to secure Patani's supply of fresh water. Her power and influence were demonstrated by the urgency with which the channel was dug. The queen continuously kept herself informed about the project's progress. When it neared its completion, she personally traveled upstream to the digging site to inaugurate the channel. Raja Hijau ruled with apparent success for 32 years. In 1604, Jacob Van Neck wrote, So that all subjects consider her government better than the dead king, for all necessities are very cheap here now, whereas in the king's time, so they say, they were dearer by half because of the great exactions which then occurred. During her reign, both the Dutch and the English were granted permission to open trading factories in the city. Several European visitors reported that they were welcomed upon arrival in Patani by the Queen's intermediaries and had gifts of fruit and other food sent in her name to their ships. She also presented the visitors with precious gifts. Van Neck, for example, received a golden kris, and on several occasions, she entertained the European visitors at her court. When Raja Hijau died in 1616, all the men of the country were ordered to shave their heads and all women to cut off the ends of their hair. She was succeeded by her sister, the also unmarried and childless Raja Biru, the Blue Queen, who was about 50 at the time. This suggested that the Orangkaya, the class of merchant aristocrats, had shifted to women rulers as a political preference. According to Nicholas Gervais, a visitor to Siam, the Orangkaya seemed wary of obeying kings who maltreated them and shook off their yoke in favor of queens. By the time of Raja Biru, female rule had become an increasingly recognized system. Raja Biru improved the channel that had been dug under Raja Hijau. She also ordered her officials to bring back her younger sister, the recently widowed Raja Umu. Raja Umu, the Purple Queen, was married to the King of Pahang. She also ordered her officials to bring back her younger sister, the recently widowed Raja Umu. Raja Umu, the Purple Queen, was married to the King of Pahang. Her daughter, Raja Kuning, was named in 1620 Dutch horses as the heiress to the throne of Patani. When the King of Pahang died, Raja Umu was no longer tied by marriage to Pahang. She was then free to ascend to the Patani throne in 1624, bypassing her daughter in the line of succession. Raja Umu was a decisive political leader, and she did not like the Siamese very much. She refused to use the Siamese-derived term Peracao, and instead used the Malay title Paduka Sia Alam, 
Her Excellency Ruler of the World. The Austrian Christoph Karl Fernberger described how the Queen, apparently without consulting her counselors or other prominent Patanis, gave orders for the mobilization of 3,000 men in order to undertake a war expedition against Siam. She appointed officers, inspected the troops before departure, and eventually, after the successful conclusion of the expedition, agreed to the peace conditions according to which the Siamese king renounced for all time any claim to Patani sovereign territories. But the conflict with Siam did not end there. In 1633 to 1634, Siam dispatched a large military expedition in order to force Patani into submission. The city did not yield, but the war cost them suffering and a serious decline in trade. In 1635, Raja Umu died and her daughter, Raja Kuning, the Yellow Queen, succeeded her. The new queen ordered the dynasty's personal treasures be turned into royal property and transferred to the state. During her reign, she restored relations with Siam. She resumed sending the tribute of the golden flower to the king. She accepted the title of Perachau and also visited the Siamese court herself in 1641 in order to restore relations. Unfortunately, Raja Kuning was ousted in 1651 by the king of Kelantan, Raja Saki I. He installed his son, Raja Bahar, as the first ruler of the Kelantan dynasty. He ruled Patani until 1670, when his wife, Raja Mas Kelantan, succeeded her husband to the throne. They had no sons but two daughters. The unmarried youngest daughter, Raja Mas Chayam, succeeded her mother in 1689. By this time, however, the queen was a powerless figurehead. And because so many of their queens were unmarried and childless, Patani eventually abandoned the dynastic order of succession in favor of just electing the queen. This was true in 1702 when a new queen, Raja Dewi, was put on the throne. She did not belong to the Kalantan dynasty though, and this period was one of infighting among the Orangkaya. In 1716, Raja Chayam was reinstalled as queen, but she died two years later. With her death on the throne, Patani's long period of institutionalized female rule came to a definite end. Producing a podcast like this takes a lot of time and research. If you like what we do and want to support the next episodes, head on over to our Patreon. Give as little as $1 to get a copy of the show notes with all the references, access to the close friends' Instagram stories, and a shout-out at the end of the next episode. And if you can't, just tell your friends about this podcast. That works too. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at HerStoryCPod. That's HerStorySEAPod. In the next episode, we'll talk about Lady Chan and Lady Mook, the heroines of Phuket, who defended the island in the Burmese-Siamese War of 1785 to 1786. There are so many more stories to tell and we're just getting started. This podcast was written, hosted, and edited by Agas Ramirez. Thank you to Mando for supporting this podcast on Patreon, Janelle Peterson of Synchronicity Events for the ad, David for the topic suggestion, and Ehi Mitsu for the opening and closing theme. Sampai jumpa lagi!